Welcome to another episode of the Green Minds podcast. My name is Claudia, and I'm honored today to welcome Nadia Humphreys in Green Minds. Nadia manages Bloomberg's global regulatory and climate solutions team. She also serves as an observer and previously co-reporter of the European Commission's Platform for Sustainable Finance, is a member of the Green Technical Advisory Group for Her Majesty Treasury UK and the fin Green Finance Industry Task Force convened by the Monetary Authority of Singapore, and also sits on the co consultative working group of the Coordination Network of Sustainability for ESMA. She's a keen advocate for women in fintech and sat on Bloomberg's immediate diversity council. Prior to Bloomberg, Nadia worked at both JP Morgan and Goldman Sachs in a number of senior positions. So Nadia brings not only a great understanding of ESG regulations in both the EU and the UK, but also practical experience of building sustainable finance solutions and economies globally. So welcome to GreenMind's podcast, Nadia. Oh, thank you, Claudia, for inviting me. So as I read in your bio, you have an impressive career in finance. I'm very grateful for you to be here and to share a bit of, about this as well with us. But you also do a lot of technical advisory groups and policy tasks. So can you please share a bit more about how your career journey developed and what brought you to work in sustainable finance? Yeah, absolutely. So for me, my role in sustainable finance really took off actually quite late in, in my career. So I was a delegate on Europe's technical expert group. I actually joined that group whilst it founded in 2018 and in 2019. So it was already a year in place. And that group was tasked with building out this new tool. And that tool was called the taxonomy. And the aim was really that it would act like a dictionary to define environmental sustainability. And what that means is how would a cement manufacturer make green cement? How would a car manufacturer make green cars? Now, my background was not in sustainability when I took that role. My background was actually in financial regulation. So what that meant was that I sat in something called the usability group. Mm. So we offered the commission advice on if you want an outcome that is the flow of private capital into these good industries, what regulatory or policy measures do we need to put in place? That, that basically stimulate the financial sector to push capital into the right space. So that was the advice that I, I was giving. And, and actually, it was a sort of natural fit to my background in financial regulation rather than something that was pure sustainability. Now, being in that technical expert group was great for me because I learned an awful lot from the cohort of people who did understand how to produce green energy. And through that work, I have then been delegated, as you'd mentioned, on a number of other technical advisory groups, because other jurisdictions like the UK, currently like Australia, like Singapore, have been building their own taxonomy. And they're very keen to learn from the people that helped Europe build theirs. So it sort of accelerated from that point on. I was, I was very lucky in taking the European role at a point when nobody really knew what a taxonomy would end up looking like or how it would be put into regulation. Thanks for sharing. And I really want to unpack these taxonomies a bit in the next part. But before that, I'm also curious about your work at Bloomberg. So as I said, you are the head of global climate and regulatory solutions. So I understand that it's a lot about regulation, but can you please also give us a bit of background on how this works is work is connected to Bloomberg and what role Bloomberg's has in sustainable finance? Yeah, absolutely. So my team's job is, number one, to understand all these ESG regulations that our clients are subject to, also climate-related disclosures and climate-related pressures on companies. And we are meant to design solutions to solve those problems 
for the financial community. So that could be solving the problem in the shape of a data product, solving the problem in the shape of an analytical product so that you can query who has the greatest decarbonizing pathway in the energy sector, who has the most credible carbon targets in the transport sector, for example. And so what we do is we recognize that, you know, to shift the whole economy to a more sustainable future, you need capital from private markets because public finance alone is not large enough to be able to make that transition. So basically we try to give our clients, both in the public and in the private sector, was the ability to make more informed decisions about climate risks or climate related opportunities that they can invest in or invest away from. So what we do is we look at 15,000 international companies that represents about 92% of global market capitalization. So pretty much all the major listed companies that you would want to invest in. And then we compare them on a set of environmental, social or governance-based data points. In fact, we have north of about 5,000 different KPIs that we collect internationally. And so that means whether you're looking at a Vietnamese dairy or Google or Apple, we're going to show you that data set in a very clear and comparable manner so that if our clients want to invest to hit net zero targets that they themselves might have committed to, we can show them what, what are the right companies in the right sectors to help them achieve those goals. So that's what we do in Bloomberg. Yeah. So is this something, just to be, give a very hands-on example, is this something that, you know, students can see in their Bloomberg terminals when they open these ESG analyses? Is this something that your team is working on? They absolutely can. So if they type ESG go onto a terminal, then all, all the little tabs are the pieces that we're working on as the product team. Yeah. Yeah. I have indeed used this as an ESG analyst for for student investment fund here in Imperial. So this is also a tip for anyone who's going to work on that later or during their studies. It's, it's a great tool to use and it's really we appreciate that, you know, university gives us access to these terminals. So it's, it's something that people should definitely make use of also in these early stages of their career to get acquainted with the tools. So that's great work you're doing here and really must be also exciting to work on that. But as I said, I'd like to dedicate this podcast to more, you know, the, the current state of play in, in sustainable finance regulatory framework because you are an expert on this. And you already mentioned kind of what a taxonomy is, that it's a kind of dictionary for the business, mainly the businesses to navigate their their way through reaching their net zero goals and decarbonizing their businesses. So you have been working on the EU taxonomy, but also now currently at the UK taxonomy. First question is, is there any kind of timeline in terms of when this UK taxonomy is about to be published and how in-depth the document is, let's say, compared to EU and maybe also from your experience, because EU is often quoted as, and you also mentioned this, as a leader. So how has the whole process been, you know, for you coming from the EU taxonomy to the UK taxonomy and what's the stage of development? Yeah, really good questions. And actually, I heard very recently from the Green Finance Institute that they have now counted 47 taxonomies in various shapes of development across the world. But your question is a good one on the UK. I also support the Singapore taxonomy and maybe to answer the Singapore taxonomy and similarly to what we see in China. Their taxonomy relates only to debt instruments and so not to the whole company. The EU has a disclosure obligation in it. What that means is a company needs to assess its own operations and report turnover or capital expenditure or operating expenses 
that are aligned to these taxonomy activities. So if I'm a manufacturer of plastic and I am using appropriate recycling methods, the amount of recycled plastic I sell then forms part of my turnover KPI so long as I meet all these technical screening criteria. So that's what the EU have done. Now, the UK onshored that taxonomy regulation, but what they did is they stripped out all the reporting requirements. So the reporting requirement on the non-financial companies to report their taxonomy KPIs. There's also a reporting obligation on banks or credit institutions and investment managers to report for what they invest in, how much of it is taxonomy aligned. And then there's another reporting obligation that is, if I'm a fund manager and I claim my fund is sustainable in some way, then I need to tell you the percentage of it that is taxonomy aligned too. So all of those obligations don't sit on the UK's legal framework for the taxonomy. So in the role of GTAG, so the Green Technical Advisory Group, what we have been doing is we're writing papers that recommend, does the UK employ the same reporting requirements as the EU. And what we find, for example, is if we look at the UK economy, about 70 to 80% of the large listed companies in the UK would sit in scope for EU reporting obligations under the new corporate sustainability reporting directive. So when we provide advice, we have to think if they have to do the EU thing and we tell them to do a slightly different UK thing, is that just adding an additional burden, you know, having two different jurisdictions define green in a different way and have different types of reporting styles? That's not really great, the outcome we both want. So when we provide our advice in GTAG, and we should actually release a paper very, very soon, and that paper will explain what we think are the recommendations to the UK government into how they're going to report. Now, in the big green finance deal that they announced earlier this year, they said we are going to adopt the taxonomy as a mandatory reporting requirement, but we're going to have two years of it being voluntary before the mandatory reporting kicks in. So that's what the UK are doing. And another interesting point, maybe for those companies that are subject to both, what we're hoping for is that if you have to report under the UK taxonomy, you no longer have to report under the EU. So an EU investor can use your UK disclosure as good enough for their own reporting standards. Legally, that mechanism isn't set up yet. So that's something that we're trying to do a lot of work with policymakers to say, it'd be really nice to have this framework of equivalence. And whenever I go and speak in recently South Africa, or I've been speaking to Australia about the development of their taxonomy, what all of them really want to push for is this equivalence framework. There's no point them developing their own local taxonomy if large listed companies that exist to the European market have to report under the EU framework. So we think that that needs to be resolved. Yeah, this is something actually like uh, this global governance challenge, right? Like how do we govern climate change globally, which, you know, the taxonomy is one mechanism to do this. But as you say, if there's almost 50 being developed separately, but we have a lot of global companies, how do they decide or like how do we navigate this this broad term of taxonomies, different countries, different taxonomies. Thanks for sharing this. This is really, really insightful. You mentioned also that you worked in Singapore. Have you, I mean, Singapore is well known for their advancement in green finance. So what was the biggest kind of inspiration or something that strikes you as super innovative? Was there something special about, you know, the Singapore framework and your work there? Yeah, Singapore was very similar to the UK in the sense that they wanted it to be interoperable. So for companies, there's a slightly less European burden on Asia Pacific based companies. But the way the Singapore framework sits in something called the ASEAN principles based taxonomy. 
And that was the first one that started to consider something called traffic lights. So the idea that you would have these harmful activities, then you would have activities that transition out of harm, but maybe into neutral space, that's your amber. And then you have green, which is the best. So one criticism I don't necessarily agree with, but I have heard on the EU taxonomy, it's saying like the deepest, deepest green, very, very best in class can only achieve. And so therefore, if you're financing a movement away from a harmful activity, but not quite into best in class performance, how do you get any credit in that? And Singapore tried to answer that question, but it was actually technically very difficult. And I'll give you a work example. So if I am thinking about building a house, do I want that house to be built brand new in an amber category? No, a brand new house should be built in a green category. So in some cases you say, for example, for building a brand new property, that property should always try and attain the green status. Also, the EU taxonomy considers renovation. So if you look at European properties, so commercial or residential properties, quite a lot of them are very, very old and not very energy efficient. Particularly if you look at the UK, that is very, very true. And one of the problems is how do you stimulate improvement? So renovation and retrofit of housing, things like the installation of solar panels or ground source heating, like Whatever your mechanism is, insulation of properties, better windows, doors, better energy efficient light bulbs, all of that lovely stuff. How do we encourage homeowners to do those things? And so in the EU taxonomy, we already have, as long as you deliver 30% energy efficiency in renovation, both the construction company involved in that renovation, but also the person that owns that property can qualify. So if I'm a bank and I am financing that property through a mortgage, then maybe I could also create a stimulus in offering, for example, mortgage premiums for energy efficient use of property. Now in the EU, that's, that's a transitional activity. And when we started to unpack Singapore, we were like, oh, well, actually, we kind of want the same thing in Singapore, but we're calling it Amber. So we were trying to align these different approaches because the EU does have this concept of progression and we wanted that concept of progression, but in Singapore, that was called amber. I hope that's kind of a useful example. That, that, that makes sense. And interesting to hear how you, you know, try to incorporate and learn from each other. And it's so great that, you know, there's people like you who are involved in these things simultaneously because that that's like sharing knowledge and, and, and what you will learn is really important. And I want to speak a, a bit later also about like education and knowledge sharing in, in you know, sustainable finance realm. But before that, I, I still have a question about the usability and data. So one of the issues I would imagine also when you now mention these 30% of buildings, you know, renovation, et cetera, is first of all, like comparability and availability of data. When, when, you know, this, this big challenge and the second thing is kind of, if you could please talk more about usability and how it's connected or if it's connected to the data, but yeah, well, first of all, like, what's your perspective on, on the challenge of data and sustainable finance? Yeah, I look absolutely every single panel without fail is going to ask me the data challenge question. And if I go back to basics, I think there are two key goals. So number one, you need to focus on the tools needed to support the green transition. And so what that means is helping sort of polluting activities and risky assets adapt. And then the second thing is you want to help low carbon activities get access to cheap finance. So these incentive systems. 
So when we think about how do we make the tools useful, the main usability issue that we see today, like you say, availability and comparability of data. So a lot of focus from a policy perspective is also on ensuring the right things are measured and disclosed. And that what is disclosed is decision useful for the investor so that they can plow capital towards those that are doing well. And that in turn, maybe reduces the cost of capital. So when we start to think about talking about data today and we say it's problematic, I think sometimes people really struggle with what that actually means. So let me give you a couple of sort of worked examples. So when I look at corporate sustainability reporting today, because it's not legislated in any particular way, you can sort of think of it a little bit like the Instagram version of that company. All the best bits that they want to talk about, these big, bold KPIs on the front of their page, and they don't necessarily talk about the things they're not doing so well, right? They don't have to. Nobody's making them. So it's very important that you have like a standardized structure. What you also have, for example, is sometimes, and this is particularly true in the Asia region, different inclusion of companies, subsidiaries, and group structures. Sometimes it'll be a consolidated report, sometimes it won't, sometimes it'll cut have certain legal entities, sometimes it won't. So even the same company year on year doesn't give you comparable information. Now, as an investor, that's really, really challenging. And one of the other big problems is the way legislation was built, it put a lot of obligation on the financial market participants first. You need to report this way. You need to do this. And they kind of held their hand up and said, we're really struggling because we just don't have access to good data to do that. You need to put an obligation on companies to report. The, the kind of response, I think, from regulators was, look, if you're financing someone, you should be asking for this data. If you're claiming something is sustainable, you should have already obtained this data to understand that it is sustainable. We're now telling you to disclose why you think something's sustainable, and then you are telling us we don't have access to data. That doesn't make any sense. And that's been the dialogue that I've witnessed has gone on over the last couple of years. But when we try to unpack that, If you are a very, very significantly large asset manager and you go to a smaller listed company and you say to them, please, can you give me all this ESG data I now need? They're probably going to do it. Otherwise, they would lose access to your finance. They don't want you to do. Now, if you flip that and you're a small asset manager and you own 0.1% of a very large listed company and you go to that large global listed company and you say to them, I need your gender pay gap. They're going to say no, because they're going to be able to attract some other investor to that proportion. So there's this asymmetry where because you're saying asset managers go get the data, you're actually allowing the large listed to have a stronger voice than the smaller players in the market. Now, that's wrong. So what you can see has started to come about, particularly in Europe, is the Corporate Sustainability Reporting Directive, and that's setting these mandatory data points all companies that are listed in Europe, all companies that are not necessarily listed in Europe, but what's called unadmitted, admitted to trading in Europe. So you can access those companies through European exchanges or even international companies that have like a European legal entity that makes revenue in Europe. All of that covers. So the third country impact of this regulation is pretty broad. And arguably that's what needs to happen so that you have a nice standardized framework. At the same time, you have the International Sustainability Standards Board, so ISSB, working on what's called a principles-based framework. So that says, here are a set of standards universally that we would expect you to ask, to disclose. But then they give 
jurisdictions the ability to say, well, if I'm adopting ISSB, which the UK say they're going to do, I can still have my reporting framework. Now, one of the things you sometimes hear regulators say, and I'm not a big fan of it, would be, we're going to lighten the load. Like we're going to have just sort of a slim version because, you know, Europe's going all out. They're asking for a ton of data points. People are really struggling with that. We're just going to do, you know, a couple of the more meaningful things. And that's all we're going to ask for. Now, what you hear financial players say is, well, but if you only ask for like a slim version of the data, that is not enough for what we need. So then what we have to do is we have to go and email the corporate and ask them for all this additional data. Now, if you consider all the companies financing that corporate are all asking them bilaterally to provide different shapes of data, what you're actually doing is making the life of the corporate far, far worse. They have this mandatory reporting obligation, and then they have all these voluntary requests for all the additional data that they don't have to do. It's much easier for the corporate if they have one central way of consolidating all the information all the players need from them and just produce one report. So I think getting that balance right is really, really important from a policy perspective. One question that came up to mind as we were speaking about it, then what do you think about NGOs or, or players like the CDP, for example, who have their own kind of questionnaire they send to companies to, and maybe you know more about like maybe they are, this is included in some kind of framework. So can you share a bit more your perspective on this? Yeah, I think the work of CDP is excellent, actually. I mean, we sourced and make available their data through the Bloomberg Terminal. This mission to try and standardize and get people responding to kind of structured data sets is, is super important. We have seen beyond CDP that I consider to be very successful, other kind of industry associations that have sort of built their own bespoke questionnaires. The problem is lots of people rushing to solve the same problem still means that you get lots of these questionnaires out and about. And, and I think that maybe is the role of the regulators to come in and say, look, here is Here's the one standard approach. I think for that one standard approach, they need to work very closely, as I know they are doing with actors like CDP, but also with others, so with industry associations to get feedback on what they need to do. So you see, for example, the Loans Markets Association have got, you know, for use of proceeds debt, particular questionnaires that they want to be able to kind of put out into the market. And I think consolidating all of that would, would be very welcome and globally consolidating that would be, be great. I think ISSB are doing some really, really good work here. Thanks for sharing that. I have one more question about education in the green transition and the importance of that, because, you know, there's all these data points that are required for the disclosure and the regulators to have, but, you know, the way these companies, and there's obviously standards like the GHG protocol on, you know, accounting for emissions, et cetera, et cetera. But I'm, I mean... Someone has to do it and educating people who are providing these data, I think is important, not only because, you know, it has to be science backed, et cetera, but also to have this so that the people in the right positions have the drive and motivation and, and know why, what the purpose is of doing this. I don't know if you've had any interactions with, you know, lack of knowledge or lack of education being a hurdle. So yeah, do you see, do you see this as a challenge and maybe what are the other challenges that you have? met with you have met with when trying to solve this issue yeah i mean it's a a big question to try and answer i think if i maybe i'll start it on the policy side but then i'll talk kind of from a usability angle on education as well and if we just go back to the theory of sustainable finance like when properly thought through a sustainable future makes good economic sense right the the transition is going to be labor intensive for an economy 
So there's strong economic multipliers for governments who wish to invest in a sustainable future. So planting more trees, retrofitting buildings, making cities cleaner, like making goods in a more sustainable way, innovating technology, innovation in energy and utilities. The list is really, really long. And actually, we now kind of know what we have to do. It's just a case of prioritizing and doing it. Now, the problem has always been, should the public finance doing all those great things? And the answer there is no. You kind of want to create these incentives where people naturally do those things and then your economy will really, really benefit from it. So yes, I have been speaking to leaders in certain treasury departments across the world trying to say, this sort of makes good sense if you adapt what you are asking people to do in very particular ways, you create those trigger systems where your economy will naturally transition without you having to publicly finance that transition because you're told to at a particular point in time. One of the problems, as you've picked up on in this interview, is doing that in an internationally consistent way. You don't want lots of people kind of solving the same problem in, in different ways. That becomes difficult. But then on the education side, when you've got something like the EU taxonomy, it's really difficult. It's like a really, really new way of assessing a company. And it's not easy. I spoke to one corporate, a large Czech energy firm, who said that there were 75 people involved in their organization in their very first taxonomy report. I mean, that's a huge investment. They're basically having to kind of rethink the way they measure certain things. Now, as a result of them putting in so much effort to rethink the way that they're measuring things, you might hope that they then act slightly differently. They've got a lot of people who are investing in measuring something and that, that that measurement over time will improve. My argument would be, you know, year two probably doesn't involve 75 people who sort of know what you're doing. But my hope is that initial investment is good. Now, the education of people to do it right is important. A lot of what I have seen, for example, in European taxonomy disclosure, which today, this is the first year of it, is not good quality. It, people who just don't understand how to do it right and misunderstanding the requirements. I think that the very first launch of the taxonomy delegated that is like 660 pages of quite technical guidance. And that's hard to access if that is not kind of your natural language. So... Yeah, there's, there's a big part of the platform that I sit in, in outreach. You know, things like this are really important. The role that your community, you students play, number one, in understanding these things. But then when you enter the labor market, being able to execute really strongly because you're the new fresh blood with kind of a real vocation to make this successful, I think is really, really important. And making sure I go and, and do some visiting lectures sometimes on sustainable finance and on that basis, making sure that you as a community are really, really aware of what's happening and how you can play a part in that, I think is, is very important too. Yeah, I mean, you should come to Imperial too. I don't know if you've ever been, but I can put you in touch with someone. Uh, <laughs> I'd love to, love yeah. to. We have a lot of like climate change, environment, finance focused programs. Some are more technical on the technology side. Some are more, you know, business and finance oriented, which is the one I'm studying. So there is a lot of um, opportunity there but before before I ask you a like final advice question I, I have one more question what do you feel that this financial industry and all these regulatory frameworks are on a good way and are kind of leading to change because despite all these frameworks being in place you know emissions are still rising markets are still financing fossil fuel companies deforestation is still happening you know you could 
get all these arguments, but despite that, are you feeling optimistic and maybe when do you see this all having the impact that we want it to have? Yeah, Claudia, look, I am very sympathetic to the role that kind of NGOs and climate activists play in this space. They play an important role of kind of holding up that mirror and saying, you are not acting quick enough, cannot see the signs that you're treating this urgently as we need you to treat that. And I think their voices are important and a consistent message that asks for that, I think is also really critically important. In my field, I meet ton of people in the finance sector, a ton of corporates who want to do the right thing and want to make a change and want to invest in this way. I have policymakers who I speak to that are also very passionate on this subject. So I think people do. Unfortunately, by the way of you know global economic systems, these things are like rolling a boulder up a hill. Like it takes a little bit of time to build momentum and to get us to a point where we are going to start to see kind of meaningful reductions in carbon, for example. I think the mechanisms in place will achieve that. Are they all 100% perfect? No. Are people sort of grappling with exactly how to do certain types of disclosure? Yes, they are. Are they getting it wrong unintentionally? Yes, they are. But that's change, right? As you well know from organizational behavior, change is hard. And it, it goes on a little bit of a roller coaster journey of kind of pushing back and then acceptance and then, you know, before you get into the norming phase. So we need to go through that cycle. I feel optimistic that we are on the right path. And certainly from the engagement I have, although I admit the engagement I have probably is biased to change happening. So, so maybe I've seen it through that lens. So before this whole movement, right? So you, you've, you've been in finance probably so, so. You've seen the development over the years that it's become way more prominent now. Definitely. I mean, really, I think TCFD was the catalyst, the Task Force for Climate Related Financial Disclosure. That has been very, very successful. Um, it's been adopted in over 100 companies. And, and actually, the bare bones of it, what was really successful is asking for a governance structure. Who in your firm is accountable for managing climate risks and opportunities? That's the primary question that it was asking. And when you put the right governance structure in place, and someone is actually in each company responsible for making that decision, good stuff starts to happen. When you do start measuring things and producing metrics, you're going to be held accountable to those metrics. So if human behavior is over time, you will start to improve those metrics and you can make really good judgments against them. So, uh, so yes, I think all of those things are happening in my early career, kind of at the turn of the century. Were we talking about this? No. Really, no. Was it a, you know, a mainstream part of financing decisions? No, I think it's really, really exploded. Probably 2018, 2019 was kind of the big bubble that, that tilted it over. Mm, although the ESG, and this is, there is a lot of discussion about this, but like the term ESG has been coined and was coined in like 2003, four. There was this speech written by Georg Kell from Arabesque, but you were right that you know, TCFD probably was a big catalyst and I feel like there is a lot of different, you know, Paris Agreement, all words, et cetera. So, but yeah, I, and, and I want to just last question back upon what you said about the, the leadership and, and governance and all this. And I believe a, lo a lot of listeners to this podcast are aiming to become the, or will become the future leaders in, in this field. And I'd like to ask you as someone who has a ton of experience and is really an expert as a sustainable finance professional, what advice would you give, you know, the students, but also maybe someone who wants to enter the climate space or finance space as a change of their career? Yeah, what, what would you tell us? 
Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. My advice, I sat on a panel of women who all sit in sustainable finance and we were all asked this question. We all answered it differently. So take mine with the pinch of salt. But my one is to specialize, actually. Find something that you want to be really, really good at and invest yourself wholly in specializing in that field. So for me, in sustainable finance, I became fully, fully entrenched in taxonomy development. Now, through that, I have broadened it to sustainable finance. But my my starting point was know and understand that thing inside out, backwards, forwards. Once you start to gain some subject matter expertise in this space, the acquisition of more information starts to sit around that. So if, for example, like you say, courses that are offered, some might be people are really passionate about energy being hydrogen-based and might want to really specialize in that field. I would say that is probably the best entry point rather than a generalist in how to decarbonize the whole utility sector, right? I think it's better to specialize. That specialization may well lead you to more generalist topics, but I think if you want to find your feet very quickly and accelerate your career well, for me personally, being able to become a subject matter expert in a given field, I think is a critical starting point. It's a great advice. And actually, it's a, you were as well asking all my guests this question and you're the first one to say something in terms of specialization. So, and I, I believe what you're saying is right, that you can later in your career gain like a more generalist role even, or get, you know, become a head of something with starting as an expert. Thank you very much for coming. It was a great conversation, a lot of information that I need to process, and I hope it was useful for the listeners too. So thanks for coming, Nadia, and hope to be in touch. Brilliant. Thank you, Claudia, for having me. 